You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. This analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr. .org.au. Uh, we're still locked out of the studios at Community Radio 3CR, which produces this program because of the COVID-19 crisis. So we are broadcasting externally. Any apology? Oh, if any apologies for any technical issues? It's been an extraordinarily difficult time for community radio stations across this country, not just uh, many of 150 community radio stations were affiliated with community radio network, but most of them are still broadcasting. It's great to remember that the community radio does provide exceptionally important uh, analysis for people around this country, analysis and music and views and opinions that you'll hear nowhere else. Now, Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, which is the, which is the radical independent community-owned broadcaster I broadcast from, normally has a radio from around this time of the year. Uh, this year, the radio from has been deferred, possibly to the end of the year, and there will be a special June station appeal to keep the station on air during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, I know many regular donations to 3CR that come through the radio from, from the Anarchist World this week are from people who love to emulate the rich and famous, as you know, the rich and famous uh, uh, love tax deductions and they love creating their own charity as well. We have a tax deduction, a legal legitimate tax deduction. And if you're part of the June Station Appeal of Community Radio 3CR, and I'll give you more details about it next week, and we will be starting in June from the first program in June, which I think is on Marbo Day, the 3rd of June, getting people to... Uh, ring in the donations, uh, email their donations, and maybe even post their donations. And uh, anything above $2 is tax deductible. So don't despair. You can be like the rich and famous and uh, create uh, your own charities. Okay, now if you wonder what Anik is all about, Anarchos Without Rulers, the Anarchist Project to Create a Society Without Rulers. What gives rulers uh, the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, inequalities in power and wealth? So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power that share wealth and the struggle 
sorry, the struggle to share power and the struggle to share wealth. That's what the anarchist struggle is about. So if you're involved in that struggle in any way, uh, irrespective of whether you think you're an anarchist or not, you do have an anarchist tinge to you, I'm sorry to tell you. Now, I'd like to thank all those people that continue to become members of uh, public interest before corporate interest. As said before, we would like to be a registered political party by the end of the year. Currently, we have about 420 members on the electoral roll and about 192 members we can't confirm are on the electoral roll. We will be doing a mass mail out to the uh, members who are not on the electoral who we think are not on the electoral roll to see whether they can update their details. We need 400. That's right, $400 team stamps because we will be uh, enclosing a stamp self-addressed envelope to make it easier for our members. So if you can help, send uh, ten postage stamps to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. And if you've been thinking about joining, now is the time to join. Once this COVID-19 crisis dissipates, it will be time for major political action and major political change. And in order to do that, an organisation like Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, which is registered to the Federal Political Party, will be an invaluable tool in the, in the, in the struggle for uh, to share power and uh, share wealth. So uh, go to the website, have a look, uh, net. You can download the application form by going to info at pipsy.net. Haven't got access to a computer, don't despair. You can always ring me on 0439 I'll send you out a bunch of application forms or one, whatever you require. Or you can always write to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Now, just to reassure people, we hold no data on our website, general information and opinion. There's no data. Your data is protected. Your privacy is protected. Only the registered officer and the secretary have access to the, the data, and they are elected by the membership at the annual general meeting on the, uh, in early, on the first Wednesday in November. So we do have strict protocol as far as protecting people's data and that's the other reason we don't actually we tend to use mail more so than email uh, because we think it's a much more um, personalised way of accessing members and it's a much more secure way now Bill French now Bill French died three days ago he was 99 and three months and uh, William French was an extraordinary human being. But I did live a long, productive life. He was an activist. And he was an activist for a long time. He had a, an extraordinary history, an extraordinary story to tell. He was a great uh, supporter. Him and his late wife, Joy French, who died about five years ago, were great supporters of community radio and especially community radio station 3CR in Melbourne. But they were great supporters of community radio. Uh, Bill was born in 1921, that's right, 1921, before you and I were a tinkle, uh, twinkle in anybody's eye, 1921. His father was a returned serviceman uh, from the First World War who had uh, post-traumatic stress issues. 
mother died when he was four, and uh, his father couldn't look after him and his sister, and they were placed in orphanages, and I think they stayed, or Bill stayed in an orphanage until he left at the age of 16. Now, Bill was a slightly built young boy. Uh, orphanages were tough times. He was never abused by a staff, but he had a lot of difficulty with a lot of the other bigger boys. And uh, when I spoke to him on a number of occasions, he clearly remembered that he befriended a number of uh, Aboriginal boys who were in orphanages, or many Aboriginal boys and girls in orphanages at that particular time. And uh, not that much has changed. And he felt grateful for all his life. And I really feel grateful because he did everything he could to assist First Nations people in this country. He was also an active member of the Labor Party for radical forms and stood as a Labor member in the uh, safe Liberal seat of Latrobe during the uh, its time Whitman-led Labor Party campaign and became within a whisk of a few hundred votes of unseating the local member. Uh, he was a foundation member of the Kanaminawai Morboy Hennick Commemoration Committee and one of his greatest joys was when he uh, when he was 94 he and uh, he uh, drove into the Melbourne CBD uh, to attend the council meeting one evening where they ratified uh, and agreed to erect the Tunaminoi Moorbore in a, a monument after a 10-year campaign that Bill and Joy had been involved in. And uh, we were all up in the uh, balcony uh, watching and applauded at the right time when they passed the motion. And we all came down to the lobby. And uh, as... Uh, as uh, we came down, we corrugated around the front gate and we couldn't see Bill, but didn't think much of it because everybody was quite excited. And then uh, an officer from the Melbourne City Council cleared the path next to a gate, opened this black gate, and Bill drives out in his black 1962 Mercedes. Uh, <laughs> he had actually organised his own parking within the uh, Melbourne Town Hall. So uh, was a great human being. Look, he, he lived a long life. He lived a productive life. Uh, there will be a funeral on Monday to which uh, a few people will be going to because of the COVID-19 restrictions. I've been asked to say a, f a few a few words about Bill. Uh, many of our listeners will remember him. He was a regular listener of the Anarchist World this week over the 43-year period. The program has been on Community Radio 3CR and the almost 15-year period has been broadcast to the Community Radio Network. Uh, we offer our condolences to Hilton, Joy and Bill's only child. Uh, Hilton's battling with his own health issues as he gets older. And uh, I think it's important that we remember people like uh, uh, Bill French because uh, he was, uh, as I said, extraordinary man. He never forgot where he came from. He uh, always battled uh, for justice and uh, for those who... Had, uh, didn't have as much as he had. Him and his wife were a, a formidable combination, and although he's been sick a fair bit over the last 10 years, he died peacefully in his chair, in his lounge room, in his home, that had been reversed mortgage to the hilt over the last three years so he could stay at home and have uh, carers look after him, which he paid for himself. So... Uh, all the best to Bill, and hopefully I can be 5% of the man you are. You were, I should say. Listen to 
the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, next week is a Reconciliation Week, and I find Reconciliation Week quite interesting. I mean, a Reconciliation Week is bookended by two days. The 27th of May, which was the day in 1967, when a referendum was held in this country, which gave the Commonwealth the power to make legislation regarding First Nations people in this country, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Before that, each state had total control over the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population and the type of control which was exercised over Indigenous people was extraordinary, extraordinary. I mean, we even had the, uh, the forerunners of the apartheid movement in uh, South Africa come out to Queensland in the 30s to see how you could actually set up an effective apartheid movement and what needed to be done uh, to uh, ensure that it uh, was effective. It was a brutal system. Now, people say that the referendum was about Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders having the right to vote. That was not the issue. The issue was about giving the Commonwealth the constitutional power to make legislation regarding this country's First Nations people. And the other side of uh, Reconciliation Week is bookended by Mabo Day, which is on the 3rd of June. And on the 3rd of June, 1992, Eddie Mabo and two other men, uh, Father Rice and Father Passy from the island of Moor, after a long 10-year campaign, uh, overruled the ridiculous notion on which this nation was built on, which is terra nullius, the land of no one. So these are two important days, irrespective of what you think of the referendum and, and Marbo Day. These are exceptionally important days, and these days are used to bookend reconciliation. With, let's not forget, 26th of May is National Sorry Day, the day in which you remember uh, the way Indigenous children were removed and continue to be removed uh, from their families by state authorities and uh, federal authorities across the country. But my late wife, Ellen Hosea, and myself, we have been involved in reconciliation projects for many, many decades because we felt that um, reconciliation was important. Ellen being Indigenous herself, uh, it played a big role in uh, the lives we led. And uh, there's a number of bursaries which uh, will be awarded uh, to children living in Bayside, which I'll speak about next week. But I think the important thing is the word reconcile. It's an interesting word. I mean, we've all reconciled, whether it's family reconciliation, whether it's reconciliations with friends with which we have dispute. Now, there are obviously some behaviours which are irreconcilable. It doesn't matter what you do. They are totally irreconcilable. But it's important to remember that there are that reconciliation takes two parties. Two parties. And I find it extraordinary that Indigenous Australians, so many, a huge majority of Indigenous Australians, First Nations people, are keen to reconcile. Now, if what had happened to Indigenous Australians in this country had happened to my family, I don't think I would want to reconcile. But the extraordinary thing is that so few Australians are 
actually interested in reconciliation, although those that have been wronged, a great majority want reconciliation. Those that were responsible and continue to benefit from the continuing colonisation process, a significant majority are not interested in the concept of reconciliation. And this comes about for one very good reason, because of the cultural, social and historical amnesia regarding the way this country was colonised and the toll that was paid by Indigenous Australians across the country. People who had lived on this continent for over 60,000 years, 200, over 220 independent nation states, uh, you know, found themselves destroyed or partially destroyed in a relatively um, short period of time. So reconciliation is important, and we need to remember uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, 2017, which was um, a compromise which represented from most of the Indigenous uh, groups, nation-states around this country who met at Uluru, made three simple demands. One, truth-telling, makarata, truth-telling. In order to people to understand the need for reconciliation, they need to understand the story of this country, the bloodletting, the injustices, the racist legislation which we continue to see in many parts of this country. It's not just about the past, it's also about the present reconciliation. So truth-telling, the second thing they wanted, which has been misconstrued on purpose by many people in the media and, and, and uh, in authority, was having a representative body to actually advise the government on Indigenous affairs, Indigenous uh, legislation. A representative body, a little bit like the old ACTIC body, a representative body of this country's Indigenous people. And thirdly, to begin the journey towards a treaty or treaties in order to overcome the injustices which have occurred and continue to occur up till today. So it takes two parties to reconcile. And if one party is not interested, then reconciliation is, is not possible. Why isn't Australian society as a whole interested? Obviously, there's a minority that's interested in reconciling. But a majority is at one, ignorance, because of the way this country's story has been told. And two, I think more importantly, is the effort which is put into, uh, into fighting the idea that the land ownership we have now is illegitimate form of ownership and that the original inhabitants never ceded their sovereign rights over that land. So at the end of the day, it's about land. And the reason the Mabo decision was so uh, jumped on in 1992 was for one very simple reason, because the first time in Australian history, as far as colonisation began, the question of legal ownership of land was raised. And there's one particular 
image which stands in my mind, and I'm sure will stand in a lot of other people's mind, is the picture of which was taken by Merv Bishop, an Aboriginal press photographer, uh, a very famous Aboriginal press photographer who won the Oka Prize recently, I think two or three years ago, when the when Whitlam bestowed native title, that's the Whitlam-led Labor government, native title in the Northern Territory in the ACT, which they had control over, uh, to the people, Indigenous people in those territories. And that picture is of Whitlam pouring land back into the hand of Walter Wingari, which shows that it's, uh, it's always a struggle about land. Now, if we can't even discuss the possibility of reconciliation, let alone take it seriously, I think it highlights a huge gap in the top of society we are and nothing will ever change unless reconciliation is taken seriously and the three main demands of the Uluru Statement from the Heart are actually addressed and discussed. And that is truth-telling, Truth-telling exercise across the country, a little bit like a Royal Commission, to actually highlight what actually happened and what continues to happen during this colonisation process, which continues, as I speak. The question of Indigenous people actually having representatives who can actually advise Parliament on legislation which is passed by Parliament for Indigenous people and the journey towards a treaty, or possibly treaties, between the 220 different nation-states and the Commonwealth of Australia. Not just state-based treaties, which are limited in the extent, but actually treaties which uh, put an end to the undeclared war that exists between Indigenous and Indigenous Australians. It's a little bit like North and South Korea. There's a truce, but no treaty. It's the same here. 220 plus years later. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Let's move on to a few more boring things, but which will become extraordinarily important at the end of September this year, because I'd just like to throw out a few facts and figures and discuss these facts and figures, because, as I said before, sometimes we can't do much about what's happening in the rest of the world, but we can do something about what's happening in this country today, whether it's reconciliation or whether it's the economic meltdown, which we are about to see in four or five uh, months' time. Because, you know... You hear about lies, damn lies and statistics. I think uh, Albert Einstein talked about that. But I'd just like to give you some facts and figures which kind of get lost in the artificial unemployment rates which are talked about by the government. Currently, about 60 to 65% of Australians are on social security benefits. Think about that. 
social security benefit. And all the, or most of these, at least half of these, will be wound down at the end of September. Because as the APRA chairman, Wayne Burns, said, we can only provide limit, the banking sector can only provide limited support to people. Limited support. Currently, there are 6.1 million workers on JobKeeper. I'll tell you that figure again. 6.1 million. Let's not forget that we would be lucky to have maybe when you don't count the 1.7 temporary workers in this country, you'd be lucky to have about 12 million in the paid workforce. So that's half the workforce, roughly, because obviously uh, temporary workers and refugees and asylum seekers are not entitled to JobKeeper. 6.1 million. That's at least one in two. 6.1 million. That's an extraordinary number. And the way things are designed currently, that payment of $750 a week will disappear at the end of September. And it's not just the payment that's the problem. The problem is the payment has artificially allowed um, employers, because the money goes to employers, you get it through your employer, to keep on staff. But it's obvious that once the JobKeeper allowance disappears that many of these people will become unemployed because many businesses across this country will close down, especially small business. And I'll tell you why. Everybody thinks that uh, rents, and most small businesses rent, they haven't got the money to own their own property, that rents have been cancelled for six months. They haven't been cancelled. They have been deferred. D-E-F-E-R-R-E-D. Rents have been deferred and the people who've got leases will be expected to repay that money over a two-year period. So could you imagine a business opens up temporarily in stages? Not only do they have to pay their rent, but they have to actually pay that deferred rent over a 24-month period after September, and at the same time, they have to maintain the number of customers they had before the COVID-19 crisis. So it's an extraordinary cliff that many of those 6.1 million people on JobKeeper job find themselves on. Then we have one point. Six million Australians on Job Seeker, which is double, which is basically double unemployment benefits, about five hundred and fifty dollars a week, and they don't have to go through all the um, uh, hoops and ladders and that uh, unemployed people were forced to before, like uh, like you know apply for multitude of jobs, go and visit uh, disinterested. Uh, you know, a privately owned companies that supposedly help you find a job and the list goes on and on. So it's 1.6 million on job seeking. At the end of September, that payment will be reduced drastically. That's 1.6 million on job seekers. So that's 
7 million Australians who are in the workforce in mid-March this year and now on Social Security benefits. Let's not forget, before the COVID-19 crisis, one-third of Australians relied on Social Security benefits to survive. And I'm talking about old-age pensioners, disability support pensioners and single parents who are on benefits. So when you add all that up, you're looking at about about 14, maybe 15 million Australians, which is about two-thirds of the population, on some type of Social Security benefit. And as the the APRA chairman, Mr Wayne Byrne, said, you can only provide limited support. At the same time, We've seen $11.7 billion drawn out of superannuation funds as people scramble to pay their bill. And $220 billion in loans have been deferred. And that's the key word, deferred. And while they're deferred, you know, they, they are still accumulating interest. Uh, they still need, it, need to be paid and they will have to repay at a later date. So that's an extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. Now, currently, the country is slowly beginning to open up, some states more than others, depending on the COVID-19 cases they have. Victoria, very slow. Northern Territory, a little bit more rapidly. West Australia and South Australia, a little bit more rapidly. And obviously, everybody's concerned about a second wave of COVID-19 as uh, people intermingle and uh, the virus uh, finds itself in an environment where it can spread. And as we've seen with the nursing home in Sydney, what actually happens when the virus really gets a hold of a community, especially a community of uh, vulnerable people, I mean, 18 deaths in one nursing home is a huge number, but that could be repeated across the country if the virus gets out of control. And obviously, although we hear uh, uh, reports of a vaccine around the corner, a vaccine isn't around the corner. At the very best, it'd be available on a mass scale maybe at the end of 2021. So there's still an 18- to 20-month period that uh, needs to be sorted out. So that's why I keep saying that we need to raise issues during this period because this is just a wake-up call. Compared to many viruses, say like Ebola, this is a relatively mild virus with a minimal mortality rate of 1% to 2%. Although it sounds minimal, 1% mortality rate in Australia would mean 250,000 people dying over a few months because there isn't any herd immunity. As I said before in this program, I believe, not believe, I know, not believe, no, that as population densities increase, then the natural environment decreases and temperatures increases because of uh, climate change, human uh, increased CO2 emissions, that the environment becomes more conducive to viruses, and there are many, 
moving from the animal population to the human population, especially with the scale of industrial farming, which is going on around the world at the minute. So we need to be discussing what what we can do to actually disaster-proof the Australian community. That's right, disaster-proof. I'm talking about climate change, the climate emergency. I'm talking about the possibility of war, the way people are sabre-rattling, you know, as we jump up and down hugging the United States leg in this little dispute with China currently. I'm talking about natural disasters, as we've seen increasing intensity of natural disasters. We need to be discussing about a way to disaster-proof both the individual and the community as a whole. And as I've said over this program over the last few months, and it's quite interesting, this is one of the central planks of the public interest before corporate interest policy, the concept of a universal basic income, a universal basic income which each adult receives from the age of 18 a little bit of extra, you know, depending on the number of children, universal basic income, which can act as a cushion in times of disaster. And that's what this JobKeeper and the, and the doubling of the JobSeeker allowance is all about. It's about a security, a social security net. And if you want a universal basic income, we need to change the way we tax people in this country. Because you and I know that taxation for many large corporations is basically a voluntary affair. It's a voluntary affair. And over two-thirds of every tax dollar which comes into the government doesn't come from company tax, it doesn't come from small business, it comes from pay-as-you-earn taxpayers. And that is going to take a huge hit. And so few people are still in the paid workforce receiving their normal wages. So how would you fund a universal basic income if you're not going to increase individual taxation? Well, two taxes, which I think are relatively simple to impose within a computerised world, one is a 1% stock market turnover tax. Every dollar, every share or stock bought and sold on the stock market at any time, a 1% tax is added to that. You can collect up to 40 to $50 billion, depending on how volatile the stock market is. That's every year. And the other tax is a 1% transaction tax. Although we have a goods and services tax, the GST, the GST, which they're talking about, increased to 15% to pay for the uh, job keeper and job seeker allowance. The fact is that the GST hits the poorest sections of the community the hardest. A 1% transaction tax would actually hit rich people the hardest because they're the ones who are moving around millions, if not tens of millions of dollars every day as they try to get their best returns for their dollars. So we need to start thinking of new forms of taxation in order to fund a universal basic income to provide basic services to people in our society because we don't want to find ourselves in this situation in the future when something else happens to actually uh, uh, attempt to destroy the community. The other thing we're I mean, very 
and uh, public interest before COVID has been very interested in over the years, is the concept of having seeding funding for collectives and cooperatives. In our society today, about 2 million people work for the public service at the federal and state level and council level, and the rest of people, and the rest of people about, you know, 85 to 90% work for the private sector. That's people who are working. What we need to do is diversify the economy by creating a third economic tier, by creating cooperatives and collectives which can provide goods and services at reasonable rates for the population. Now, anybody in a collective or a cooperative doesn't get rich. It's not like being part of a corporation. But you do have financial stability. The dilemma is today, if you want to set up a cooperative or a collective, is getting seeding funding. No organisation will give you seeding funding. We've recommended for some time now that 1% of superannuation contributions be used as seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives, which obviously that funding, some cooperatives and collectives would fail, most would succeed, that money would be paid back in buckets. So what I'm saying is it's a time now to look at different economic initiatives. Different economic initiatives within the current constitutional framework. I know people talk about revolution, but it ain't there, boys and girls. The desire for revolution is not there. And unfortunately, unless you have a strong movement on the ground during a revolutionary period, the chances of ending up with some type of dictatorship are exceptionally high if you look at the history of revolutions around the country. This is the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. If you want to leave a message, I'll get back to you in a day or two. 0439 395 You can leave messages on uh, info. Uh, you can leave messages on info at pipsy.net or you can leave messages on anarchistage at yahoo.com anarchistage at yahoo.com A few Facebook pages you may like to uh, go to you can go to uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing Public Housing Everybody's Business Um, uh, Two of my Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano or Toscano for the Public you can go to the Alan Jose Memorial Foundation Facebook page. I'm hoping to have a video presentation on that Facebook page sometime next week on the Bayside City Council regarding Reconciliation Week. Uh, in their website, anarchismedia.org, anarchismedia.org, uh, pipsy.net, pipsy.net. The list goes on and on. And if you can stand me talking for 15 to 20 minutes, you can always go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Public Interest Before corporate interests are attempting and acuity attempt to do one YouTube presentation every week looking at the uh, current situation and making uh, suggestions about which way forward. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, getting to an age where uh, I'm about to uh, you know, enter my... Um, 
three score years and ten a year or so, you start thinking about retirement. That's right, the R word. And because of the baby boom generation where uh, after the war, you know, our parents made merry and a lot of kiddies born, there's a lot of old people, there's a lot of us out there, a lot of us out there. And it's been interesting what's actually happened over the last uh, few decades with the introduction of superannuation. Because everybody used to think that superannuation was some type of golden pot at the end of your life and you'd have a great life. Well, superannuation is basically, as I keep saying, the privatisation of old age. Instead of a state looking after you, after you've worked for a large, you know, five decades, four or five decades, you're expected to look after yourself. But the cruelty about it all is that superannuation funds, funds that are actually there to look after your old age, are actually invested in the very systems that exploit you, the stock market, housing, the list goes on and on. Extraordinary. So a lot of people now are termed self-funded retirees. You like that word? Self-funded retirees. It means they have been able to acquire enough assets during their lifetime to provide for their own funding for their own old age. And a lot of funds, over 40% of self-funded retirees, is invested in the stock market. And people invest in the stock market for two reasons. One, they invest in the hope that the stock will rise. They can actually share that. They can sell that stock or share and make a profit. Or if you're older, people tend to invest in the stock market in order to receive a dividend. That means at the end of every year, if the company you've invested in has made a profit, you will get some money in your account. Franking credit, dividend, all there. Currently, in Australia, $1 in every $5 which is earned in dividend comes from the four big banks. With the COVID-19 crisis, and the pressure being placed on the banking system where loans are deferred, what's actually happened is governments have been asking these uh, banks not to pay dividends or pay reduced dividends to their shareholders at the end of the year. That means many retirees who are self-funded who rely on dividends to survive will be forced into part pensions, which means an extra burden on the community. So, as I'm saying, there are a lot of issues coming together by the end of September, a lot of issues which could create the climate for radical change. Maybe not the climate for evolution, but the climate for radical change. And we need to be in a position to be able to utilise these changes in order to put forward new ideas because people will be looking for new ideas. 
even the construction industry, which has been the backbone of the economy during the COVID-19 crisis, has not shut down, is facing a crisis. With the decrease in immigration, with the decreased need for office space, as more and more people are working from home and are still in the paid you know, workforce, with the decreased housing, as people, you know, don't find, haven't got the uh, confidence, financial confidence to actually enter the housing market, the construction industry is poised to collapse. And that would mean the end of jobs for hundreds of thousands of people in this country. And to no exaggeration, that when you see the CFMEU and the employer groups joining hands, they both realise they're in for a torrid time. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of things coming together at the end of September which will have major ramifications, which, in my opinion, will cause people to question the status quo and possibly become more active and possibly take to the streets. That is the government's worry. No wonder their laws have been... Uh, you know, they've got so many security laws in place. That is the government's worry. That is the corporate world's worry. That people will demand... demand their fair share. Reminds you of that little picture, the old cartoon. You've got these uh, tycoons sitting around a table with these high legs, you know, and occasionally they're brushing off some crubs to the crowd below and saying, there, 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 there. And the crowd below uh, starts fighting for the crumbs and ignores the table. But on one corner, there's this little group sawing the leg off one table. That's us. Right? And as conditions change, there is a possibility, slight, but a possibility that the whole table could come crashing down. Certain commentators and financial experts, which I'm not, obviously, I'm just a Dylan taunt, uh, are talking about major catastrophes which rival the Great Depression of the 1920s and the 1930s. So we need to have our act in order, in order to, sorry for the tautology, in order to take, uh, in order to be able to present a co coherent plan for radical egalitarian change in society. Because if we're not there, the haters will take charge of the movement. The racists, the sexists, the misogynists, they'll all be there. They will turn the population hatred or anger, not hatred, anger, at the minorities. And historically in Australia, that's been the way things have gone in times of crisis. No accident that uh, we're now currently blaming the Chinese people, especially those living in Australia, but nothing to do with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, well, when the bubonic plague was raging around Sydney in the beginning of the 1900s, it was the Chinese who were singled out and their homes were burnt and they were uh, chased out of the city. So it's quite interesting how in times of crisis, if you haven't got a positive alternative being articulated, 
and and people organising around that positive alternative, it opens the floodgates for the haters to take control and actually uh, create mayhem in our society while letting those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication off scot three. So think about it. And uh, you can either, you know, sit there and watch the TV or you can actually start thinking about uh, change. Now, there's a few things I'd like to uh, kind of briefly mention. Now, in France, which has been hit reasonably hard with the COVID-19 crisis, there are rumblings about the yellow vests. Now, the French government, France was basically the only European country that was not fully neoliberalised. But uh, the election of Macron as a president five years ago led to a push for neoliberal reforms, which in, in plain English means making things worse, not better, because the reform is to make things better. And the yellow shirts was a reaction to that push to uh, put things wholly in the hands of the private sector. Now, I think that we will see across Europe and in the United States and parts of Africa and Asia a push for reform as the consequences of the COVID, the economic consequences of the COVID-19 crisis become more and more and more apparent. I think it's important that we keep an eye on these movements because to create such a movement is what is currently needed. Now think about it. Think about it. What are you going to do? You're going to sit at home and count the fish in the tank and hopefully have enough money to pay for the fish food. You're going to get out in the street sooner or later and, or more importantly, get involved. Start talking to your friends. You can't get out in the street. You're worried. That's fair enough. Why don't you just start talking to your friends about uh, the possibility of radical reform? Because if there's one time we need it, it's now. Yeah. I'm usually amazed by uh, ALP Hanks' lack of understanding of history sometimes. Now, Mr. Steve Brax, who is a former Premier of Victoria, who's now on a number of boards around, corporate boards around this country, he's telling the Labor Party, that's right, he's telling the Labor Party that unions should be treated as no more important than any other interest group. You like that? It's a little bit like matricide or patricide, isn't it? Because Mr. Steve Brax needs to understand that the Labor Party was born out of the trade union movement in the 1890s when the great shearers strike across the east coast of Australia failed in the 1890s. There was mass dislocation. The trade union movement was beaten into submission. Sections of the trade union movement decided they needed to move into party politics in order to challenge capitalism. And it's no exaggeration to say they had extremely had success very early, very early on. Australia was the first country in the world to have a Labour Party elected, I think it was in 1912. It didn't last long, but it was the first country 
And a lot of the reforms which occurred between the formation of the Labor Party to the Hawke-Keating years when uh, the Labor Party drifted into apologists for neoliberalism had a profound positive impact on the community, especially the legislation which was uh, uh, passed by the much maligned Whitlam-led Labor government, which was elected in 1972 after 25 years of, of uh, liberal rule. Things like, I'm talking from a community radio station, who passed the legislation to provide the money to establish community radio stations across the country to break the back of the corporate-owned media and the government held at ABC? It was the Whitlam-led Labor government who introduced no fault divorce the Whitlam-led Labor government, who introduced legal aid, the Whitlam-led Labor government, who introduced three tertiary education, the Whitlam-led Labor government, who introduced benefits for single mothers, which didn't exist before 1972, the Whitlam-led Labor government. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And we're told it was the worst government ever. No wonder it was removed. So... What we need to remember is that change only occurs if you become active. You can't leave it to somebody else. It's a little bit like being part of a family or a community. Everybody needs to pull their weight. There's no point leaving it to people like uh, you and me, uh, just to a few individuals. Change needs people to become active. So I encourage you to become active. Think about it. Uh, even join public interest or corporate interest is you know, a form of activity. Because the dilemma is we need to get ideas across. And once this uh, COVID-19 crisis dissipates, which it will, if every crisis dissipates over time, I mean, we need to be there to, to be able to hit the ground running. So thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Uh, you can write to me at Post Office Box 20 Parkville, 3052. You can email me at uh, anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipci.net. You can join. You can download the application form to join public interest before corporate interest by going to pipci.net. A few Facebook pages you may find of, may find of interest. Defend and extend public housing. Public housing, everybody's business. Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public. The Alan Jose Memorial Foundation. YouTube channel, public interest before corporate interest. And this goes on and on. Plenty of things happening. Don't forget Reconciliation Week. There will be a lot of virtual uh, activity, a little bit of physical activity. Most of it will be virtual activity during this COVID-19 crisis. Don't forget National Sorry Day, the 26th of May, uh, the referendum, 19th, uh, 27th of May, and Marbo Day, the 3rd of June. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. 
Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.